this is the Sunday where all preachers everywhere have a sermon about mothers and, and, and Mother's Day, um, and for fathers on Father's Day, and, and we, we play along with the greeting card holidays. Um, I don't do that. So if you're here for that, or, or anybody watching online is tuning in for that, two reasons. Number one, I was born with a genetic trait. I'm a contrarian. And when you tell me that I have to preach on a certain subject, I will do the opposite. That's just the way I am. So I don't like being, I don't like being beholden to a calendar for certain sermons. The other thing is this. There are people in our community, church community, church family, not just here but anywhere, who are not mothers or they've lost a child or they've never had that wish or dream fulfilled, or they've had a relationship with a child broken, any variety of things. And it's my belief that what we do here should be meaningful to everyone as much as possible. And that's not to say that we shouldn't honor mothers. I certainly do. Um, We all have one, and so we want to honor them. And on this day, we do. But in this time, we're going to focus on something broader because what I think is often overlooked by preachers is that there are people in the audience for whom this is the worst day of the year because it's a painful reminder of something they've lost or never had. And so I like to try and be mindful of that. So if you're disappointed that we're not going to you know, read from Proverbs 31... Sorry, that's why. So we're going to deal with something a little different today. We're going to talk about slavery instead. So (laughs) there you go. Talk about needing a palate cleanser. The book of Exodus is, to me, a a really interesting book as a book of history. But also because as you move into the book of Exodus and move out of Genesis, you see a lot of cause and effect. That's a really interesting thing to see. Because in history, we don't often get to live long enough to see cause and effect, truly. Uh, Things that happen centuries in the past are impacting what goes on in our world today. And the things that we do today will impact the world centuries later. Uh, And we don't often get to see that. And the same is true here. What's happened at the end of Genesis is that Israel, or, or Jacob, his sons, including Joseph, They end up in Egypt, and Joseph has been there for some time, and he's a bit of a hero in Egypt in this time because they're going through a massive famine. And because of his leadership and his governance, they were able to be a a source not only for their own people but for others who would travel there for food and for sustenance. And so that brings the influence of Israel and his descendants to Egypt. Now, we think of Egypt as kind of this far-off place when it comes to God's people, right? They have a promised land in in Jerusalem, and and they're up here, and Egypt's way up. They're really, really close. All these places are actually a lot closer than we realize geographically. But also historically, there is a, a lot of presence and history and influence of the Jewish people or the Israelites in Egypt and other parts of northern Africa. And, and we think of it as a Middle Eastern thing, and, and, but it's all so close. But to this day, there are 
remains, remnants, evidence of Jewish uh, people worshiping God in northern Africa and in parts of Egypt. The, um, one of the oldest Christian churches uh, comes from northern Africa. It's the Coptic church. You might have heard of them referred to as the Coptic Christians. These are Arab Christians in northern Africa and in parts of Egypt. They're almost extinct. They, they've almost been driven out because of other political influences. But the Coptic church has been around for a long, long time, and they count as their founder uh, Mark, John Mark, Mark of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark of the Travels of Paul. Uh, Mark came from a wealthy family, evidently, perhaps in northern Africa. He owned property there and in Jerusalem. That, that's what evidence we have. So this connection, this relationship between Egypt and northern Africa and God's people has been going on and on during Babylonian captivity, during the time where Israel was driven out of Jerusalem. Many of them escaped in exile to Egypt. Temples and the remains of temples remain in places in northern Africa that demonstrate God's people were there because the things that happen at one time affect the things that will happen later. And that is to this day why members of the Islamic faith have some of the views they do about Jewish people. For Jews, they see it as these are the descendants of Ishmael, we're the descendants of Isaac, right? For the, the Muslim, they, as the descendants of Ishmael, are the chosen line. And Jews are not just Jews, they are Arabs who betrayed their kinsmen. That's the way they see them. Why? Because at a certain point in time, the Jews left Egypt. They left the Arab world to return to Jerusalem. And to Arabs, they see that as a betrayal. Now, the Jews see it as going home, but that's a part of their history of conflict and how they see each other and define each other. So all of this has to do with the relationship between God's people in the history of, of that story and this place called Egypt. And a lot of that starts because Joseph ends up in Egypt. And Jacob and his children go to Egypt for food. They reunite with Joseph. And then we reach the end of Jacob or Israel's life. But this sets in motion some things that God has in store. God has a plan. And it brings his people to Egypt, but though they remain there after the time of, of Jacob and Israel and, and his children, they are, they are still foreigners. They are still in a strange land. They are still not accepted. Very quickly, as is the case oftentimes in history, people divide. And these are the outsiders the Jewish people, the Israelites, they are the others, the Hebrews. And they become slaves because they represent an ethnic minority in this group, in this place, and they are enslaved. And that's where we find things as we get into the book of Exodus. We enter into the picture of the life of someone named Moses, who we know very well. Moses is born into two worlds. What, a, what an interesting life he must have lived because he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. And his mother, you know, tries to hide him for fear of his safety and the life he will have to live. He's found. He grows up understanding his Hebrew roots but living the life of Egyptian royalty. 
What must that have been like? To witness the things he witnessed, to be exposed to the ideas that he was exposed to, to turn out the way he did. But the plight of God's people continues. And when we come to Exodus chapter 3, Moses has fled. He's got to get out of town. Bad things happen, and he's got to escape. So he's in hiding, working as a shepherd. And God appears to him. The Spirit of God appears in this bush that is burning. We know the story. It's in Exodus chapter 3. Where the, in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire and in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And God is now ready to make his presence known and announce his intentions to Moses for what he plans to do about his people. His people are suffering. His people are enslaved. They are being mistreated. They are under oppressive rule. Does God ignore these things? Does God not see them? The old hymn that we sing, Does Jesus Care?, does Jesus care? And the, and the refrain of that song, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched by my grief. Our God, our Father, and the Son, and the Spirit understand what we feel and experience. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why the Spirit comes as our comforter, uh, we read in, in John chapter 16. That's why we have those things, because this life is hard, and sometimes... We are enslaved. God's people are enslaved when we get to Exodus chapter 3 and God calls on Moses to go and to free them because he sees their hurting. Verse 7 of chapter 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place the Canaanite and Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, behold, the cry of the Son of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God sees the pain of his people, and he wishes to do something about it. And he's using as the instrument Moses. Now, I want you to hold on to this. Keep it in the back of your mind for later down the road here. God sees the suffering of his people under oppression, and he is going to raise up for them and deliver a liberator, someone to come and free them. Now, God, he's God. He can just do things. But God doesn't just do things. Throughout the story, God appoints, raises up, or delivers someone who will be the one to take the action. Uh, Wednesday night in our Bible class, um, might have been a couple Wednesday nights ago now, we talked about, it was was last Wednesday night, we talked about the role that we see Jesus in in Scripture very often as the one who takes action. God is the source uh, of the plan, the Spirit is the source of the power, and the Son, Jesus, is the source of action. So I want you to keep this in the back of your mind. God sees the pain and oppression of his people. He raises up a liberator to free them from that oppression and to take action on his plan. Keep that in mind for what will come down the road. So he sends Moses. 
he sends Moses to go back, to go to Egypt and to take care of this. Now, what happens when Moses gets there? Moses gets there and he goes to Pharaoh and he announces, I'm here to free the people. God says, let them go. And if you don't, bad things are going to happen. And, and I'm sure, you know, Pharaoh just said, oh, of course, I understand. Yes. No. If history has taught us anything, it's that people don't give up cheap labor very easily. And when you're building a civilization and an empire on the backs of free, oppressed labor, it is almost always necessary that force be used to bring about their liberation. That has been the bent of history, and it is certainly the story of Exodus. And in fact, the opposite of what Moses had hoped for happens. Rather than the freedom of God's people, rather than this being an easy task, and Moses is a pretty reluctant leader at this point, things get worse for his countrymen. In chapter 5, we read about how Pharaoh increased the workload of the Israelite people. He oppressed even further and more drastically the Hebrews. And so God is ready to move. God is ready to act. God hears them, and he gives his intention to Moses again. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. See, God remembers his promises. God keeps his word. And in the midst of oppression and pain and suffering, he sees and he remembers, I promised you I would deliver you. There are a lot of times when we feel trapped, when we feel in shackles, oppressed, beat down by this world, by the, the tragedy and the trauma of what we experience, by the sin and the temptation that eats away at our heart, and we feel like we're not ever going to escape it. God promised you he would provide a way. God promised you he would deliver you. And God keeps his promises. And when it feels like you're, it's never going to end and it feels like you're never going to be free and you're always going to be with this thing weighing you down, God sees you. He is prepared to deliver you. And he's ready to set you free. Our God keeps his promise. He made that promise generations prior, hundreds of years before Moses to Abraham. He made that promise. Have you ever had someone make you a promise and then time goes by and goes by and you think, ah, I think they forgot the promise they made. And you don't know whether to ask about it because that feels really awkward and it's this weird social kind of thing. You ever start a job and they say, you know, after six months, uh, we do an evaluation and we give you a pay raise. We'll give a little pay bump after six months. Six months goes by. I hadn't heard anything about that pay raise yet. The boss hadn't called you in for that meeting yet. I hadn't heard anything about that, that salary bump I'm supposed to get. Do I ask about it? Do I, do, I make, do I mention it? Do I send an email? 
What do I do? Sometimes people forget their promises. Sometimes people forget their commitments. Do you imagine that God's people, after hundreds and hundreds of years, as they are building and slaving and making bricks and they are suffering, do you think they ever stopped and said, I think God has forgotten about his promise? Sure they did. Sure they did. Because I can't have one hard day without thinking it. I would bet the generations of Hebrews that suffered in Egypt had to think it constantly. It shows how weak-minded we are. But God remembers. God won't forget. And the hope of his remembrance is there in chapter 6 when he tells Moses, it's time to go to work. It's time to move. It's time to free my people. We see a lot of ourselves in this story, no doubt. We see a lot of ourselves in the suffering of the Israelites. And we recognize some things about this concept of slaves and oppressed and oppressors and God's liberation through a liberator. A lot of parallels are made with Moses and Jesus. Most specifically in the book of Hebrews, you'll find an entire almost chapter about how Moses as a lawgiver is not quite as superior as Jesus as a lawgiver. Remember the arguments being made that the new covenant's better? And Jesus is held up against a lot of different things from the Old Testament, and particularly Moses. Moses is a liberator and a lawgiver, and Jesus is a liberator and a lawgiver, but a better one. And that's where we can see ourselves in that story. No, we don't wear chains. We're not in forced labor although those things still exist in this world, um, and they are not talked about enough. But in certain parts of this world, slavery is still a very real thing. Um, and we should talk more about that. But in our life, in some way, we still understand this story because we understand being the outsider, being the stranger, being the alien in a land we don't belong in. Christians are by design out of place in this world, always trying to fit in in order to live life, in order to, to prosper, in order to have opportunity to share our faith, and yet we're constantly on the outside just a little bit, just a little bit different. And sometimes the world turns against us. Now, there have been moments in history where a culture or a society has been more friendly to faith or to Christianity, but it often always turns back. There's a whiplash effect when you look at history. Our country itself, a lot of the really core founding principles of this country, like individual liberty and, 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 and things like that, separation of church and state, all of that comes, by the way, some of the earliest thinkers of those ideas were some of the reformers in the earliest days of the Protestant Reformation, even before Martin Luther, people like John Wycliffe, and John Huss, uh, in places like what is now the Czech Republic, were writing about those things, influencing the Scottish Enlightenment and, and what we, we had here in our revolution. There's always been a connection between political thought and theological thought. And it's influenced a great deal of history. And part of that has to do with the fact that there are moments in time 
that are friendly to faith and there are moments in time that are not. And there have been times where the church was popular or powerful and there have been times where there was a whiplash, a rebellion, a fighting back. We've been on the inside and we've been on the outside. But more times than not in history, we are viewed with skepticism. We are viewed with cynicism. We are viewed with a, a very strong impression of a nasty history that has been a part of and, and things done in the name of Jesus Christ. You think of the Crusades and the Inquisition and you can think of a whole lot of other ways that people have weaponized our scriptures to hurt others. And we have a bit of a reputation that's not always fair and not always good. That's the way the world tries to attack us and destroy us, and we feel the burden of being outsiders in this world. But even more so, I think the story of Israel's oppression reminds us of our own struggle with sin. We find ourselves in a world that not only is strange to us, but one that we're called out of. And that can be hard. It's very hard to be uprooted from this world and to stand apart from it when the tentacles of those roots are digging so deep. They're all wrapped up together. Jesus describes this in parables when he talks about the, the, the thieves that came and sowed grass amongst the wheat. How do you get that grass out? Well, you start pulling the, the grass up, you take the wheat with it. See, the good stuff gets tangled up in the bad stuff. And trying to pull yourself out of this world to serve God, there's some really ugly things that come with us. Some really ugly things that are growing into us just by being in this world. We take on the look of the culture. We take on the attitudes of our world, the perspectives, and our hearts and souls are damaged and nicked and cut over and over by our own sin and our own struggle. We are very much slaves in this world, not to political powers or military power, but we are slaves in this world to our own sin and the efforts of Satan to use this world against us, and Jesus recognizes that and in a conversation with the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 8, he explains this to them. He's making the point, by the way, in this conversation. And this conversation is, is if, if, you, if you've ever studied Greek and Greek rhetoric, people like Aristotle, the concept of how we converse on ideas and how we make arguments and rationalize our opinions... It all comes from the Greek, and Greek was the predominant language of the time and way of thinking. It very much influenced Rome. And so this conversation Jesus is having is very much an academic Greek conversation. A lot of questions, a lot of answers, a lot of response. There's this back and forth way that Jesus is making his, his point in his argument. And so Jesus, we get to uh, chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now they answered him, verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Boy, what a, what a bad perspective on their own history. 
We've never been slaves to anyone. Proud Jews. We are Abraham's descendants. Well, of course they had been slaves to almost everyone. They had been slaves in Egypt. They had been slaves to Assyria, to Babylon, all along the way. They had folk tales and stories about how they lived under this oppression and slavery. But here they proudly proclaim, well, we are our own people. As they said it, as they said it, they were a subsidiary of the Roman Empire. And they were placated with some degree of freedom, but they were Rome's. And here they stood saying, we've never been slaves to anybody, except everybody. You've been conquered by everybody. How can you say then that we will be free or that we're not free? And Jesus answered them. And look, this is where we start bringing these two stories together. We start to make the connection that was right in front of them that they couldn't even make. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So he's not even going to go with the history lesson, right? He's going to say, yeah, you've been enslaved, but the more important taskmaster that we find ourselves under is sin. It's not the chains, it's not the labor, it's not the secondary status. It's the sin in our own heart that enslaves us greater than anyone else or any other entity in this world. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. I just, I have to, the way that Jesus is masterfully responding to them here. They're talking about being descendants of Abraham. This is from where they draw their honor and where they draw their authority. Descendants of Abraham were chosen by God. And Jesus says, well, not only am I a descendant of Abraham, but I am from the Father directly. I'm the Son of God. Follow after me. Do what I say. Because I do the will of my Father like you do the will of your Father. See, they're leaning on their, their heritage, their nationality for authority. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter where you come from or who your parents were. What matters is that you follow after me. He's turning this whole concept, this whole construct on its head because they know their history. They know their history of slavery in Egypt. They know their history of oppression. They know the history of Moses, their liberator. They know about God's deliverance. 
And Jesus is saying, oh, you think you've been freed and that you're special because God liberated you, but you went right back into slavery with your sin, your perversion of the law, your oppression of the poor, your mistreatment of people on the basis of God's law. You have gone right back into slavery voluntarily, and you need a liberator. And he says something that is so strong and makes a connection so directly, and it is so angering to them who were listening. Listen to this. We're skipping to verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now think about the connection to Moses here. Moses said, I'm not special on my own. And God said, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. And take Aaron along too for some moral support. But when Moses was speaking, when he was bringing about these plagues and these, these hardships on Egypt, that was God working through him, right? We all see that. We all understand that. Because Moses, in the moments in Moses' life, by the way, where we see him start to step forward and say, it's about Moses, God puts him down. In fact, it led eventually to his banishment from the, whole, from the promised land and his death. He tried to step out and make it about Moses. Jesus says, hey, I'm not glorifying me. I'm glorifying the Father. Moses, same way. His greatest success was not in glorifying himself, but in glorifying the Father. So let's put all this together. Of whom you say he is our God, and you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now that is a confusing thing to say because Abraham has been gone a long, long time. And so they ask amongst themselves and they say to, to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, now listen, because this draws a direct line from the story of Moses to Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, get past the initial grammatical confusion of the way that's worded, because it is exactly worded with intention and purpose, the way it is. When Moses is there in front of the burning bush, he asks a very important question. Um, when I go and I tell them that God sent me to free, and by the way, we don't, there's a lot of words for God, and we don't really know his name, okay? We've made some up and we've guessed at it, but he, this is a very important question Moses asked. Who do I say sent me? Because there's a lot of gods out there that, you know, in this part of the world that people talk about and worship. And if he shows up and says, hey, God sent me to free the people, you need to let them go, they're going to ask me who. Who sent you? And the voice from the bush said, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. That's such a powerful statement, by the way. That name, I am, I, I exist. I exist. That kind of makes sense almost, that that's the name of God. So Moses goes armed with this information that I am sent me, and that becomes how they know him. 
how they know their God. The people who are talking to Jesus now in the book of John, we read in chapter 8, they know the stories. They understand their history. And Jesus is drawing from that history to make a point. God liberated you and freed you over and over and over. And every time you have voluntarily put yourself back in chains, not by your political opponents, not by your military opponents, but by your own sin and inability to keep his law. And I have come one last time for all of time to free you from it. The law is gone. The sin is gone. All that remains is the Son. And who is the Son? I am, he says. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now that would have rung a bell for them. Moses the liberator, empowered by the great I am, went and performed signs in front of the powerful Egyptian pharaoh in an effort to free the people from their bondage that they may reach a promised land, a land of rest, a land of peace. It was an arduous journey along the way. But as Jesus comes into his own and he has this conversation, the point he makes is this. Slavery still exists. Oppression still exists. Pain and, and occupation and forced labor, it all still exists. But it doesn't exist in Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or North Korea, or China, or Iraq, or Iran. For us, it exists in the sin that we dabble in. It exists in Satan's schemes to trip us up and convince us God wants nothing to do with us. It exists in the broken relationships, in the pain, in the temptation. Our slavery looks very different today because our battle is no longer physical, it is spiritual. Moses came with the power of God to liberate God's people and take them to a promised land. And Jesus himself draws the line and the comparison and makes the point that we too have been sent a liberator. It's not a shepherd in Egypt, though. It's not the adopted son of Egyptian royalty. It's something far greater. It's the son of God, Jesus the one who acts according to the plan of God. And the plan is this, that all of us will be freed from our bondage and we will journey to a promised land, a land of rest. The beautiful comparisons and parallels in these stories that Jesus is trying to use to make a point might be lost on some people, but it's not lost on us. We look at the Hebrews in the book of Exodus and we have sympathy because we understand their plight. We see Moses coming as a liberator and we rejoice because it looks familiar to us. We see Jesus standing in opposition to the religious elite who oppress people with their law and their regulation and the sin that destroys lives and ties people down. And he says, you are free. You are free. It took the death of the firstborn to convince Pharaoh to release them. And it took the death of a firstborn, the only son of our God, to free us. The blood on the doorpost, a precursor to the blood on the cross. And the commemorative meal of Passover, a precursor, as Jesus would establish, 
to the meal that we partake of each Sunday, when we rejoice and remember, we have been set free. We are free. A greater freedom than has ever been known in this world. The freedom from sin. The freedom from oppression. The freedom from condemnation. And we should rejoice and be glad and know him. Because to know Jesus is to know God. And it is to know the truth. And that truth is what sets us free. If you need to be set free this morning... If this world has beaten you down, if you find yourself entangled in sin and struggle, boy, does God have an answer for you. The great liberator, our Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. Join us as we stand and sing together.